Can I share with you a little bit about um, some of the time that Terry and I have had together? I hope that's okay. One of the things we like to do is bring home uh, to you what we've learned. And we're always, as we're learning together, we're trying to uh, interpret it in a way that's applicable to our daily life because our 40 days comes to an end. And uh, it's not very useful if it needs, it can only exist in a vacuum. And so I want to share with you a few things about uh, what we're learning one, they're good, but one is a good hard, and one is a good good. Uh, the good hard one is, uh, I was hoping by this point I would have like birds on my shoulders and light, and I'd be wearing like a sackcloth and blessing small children and healing paralytics. I had... I had, and I'm not saying that's what I expected. I'm just saying the vision in my mind was I was going to go get holy, and then the Lord was going to use that. And what I've learned is how hard it is to get holy. I feel like I'm a million miles away from holy. I feel, Terry and I both together feel just so regular, despite our efforts. And... um, We've come to this conclusion. We've just been saying to one another, all this week we were dealing with the reality that we don't really love people like we think we do. And um, that's been hard. And, and that is, that's the only gift of holiness that the Lord's kind of given me so far is the realization of how far away kind of Pauline holiness really is. And... And that we are, we are not. You know, if I, the whole kind of premise behind us taking this time was this thought. I'm saying to the Lord, I'm praying to the Lord, and I'm saying, why are people not coming to Jesus on my watch the way that they do in the Bible, or the way that they do at Pentecost? Or, you know, I know it's Pentecost is Pentecost. I still, as a Christian, am allowed to wish it were like Pentecost. And... And I felt the Lord saying, well, maybe it has nothing to do with your methodology. Maybe the problem is you. And, and we thought we owed it to the church and to ourselves to say, is the problem us? And I, I am inclined, I think the problem is us. Uh, so we're learning that. We're learning that uh, we really don't love people the way we... And, the kind of the corollary to this was Terry, Terry's been saying it all week to me is, is we are still almost completely self-centered. Um, and that's been, that's been a hard good because just to even have clarity on that has brought us to places that have mattered. Here's the good good, okay? Um, and this is one that I, this is your homework assignment. We have kind of found this thing. It's a, uh, I'm really excited about this, and so I'm glad to share it with you. So all we've really done is we've tried to kind of reorder the priority of things within the day. That being, we've tried to take the human being and make them a little more important than they were before. That's kind of why we've realized how little we actually love people, is we've tried to love them. Um, and so we've, we've just kind of allowed humans to climb up the ladder a little bit. And which means the things that are normally above humans um, have become a little more negotiable for us. 
And and the way this works out is we've now we've done it in an aggressive way. We've tried to free up our day in an aggressive way to allow the Lord to teach us. So we will wake up in the morning, and one day, on like on Monday last, it was so nice, we said, we're just going to go on a walk and explore the ministries of the city. We must have walked five miles that day and just kind of fall in love with the city. And so we went to Sunday Breakfast Mission and Friendship House and all these sorts of things. But along the way, there are these things that I, we have, I've come to call these clues, these spiritual clues which are things that if you're looking for God, if, you're, if your goal is to look for God, which can happen at any life. You don't need to be on some 40-day surgeon to do this. If you're looking for God, there are little places that you might feel that might beckon you just a little bit deeper. Go down this path. And they're not, they're not being all superstitious. And they're not sparkling things. They're, for one day, it was a piece of paper on a counter. And another day, it was a cast iron fence that was left open. But it was just this idea of I want to find God today, and I'm going to go look for him. And we, just the way we've arranged the day has allowed us the freedom of saying, maybe God's there. Let's go look. The reality is God's everywhere. He just wants to be looked for. And when we have done this, it has been profound. I just, I, I can't say enough. It has been, it's been awesome. And so this is what I, I want to paint it for you in the regular life, because it's life to which I'm returning. Believe it or not, pastoral life feels like office life. I know that, that sounds weird to you, but um, it's true. So here's a, an example in your everyday life of how this might look. Imagine people are just a little higher up. So you're in, the, you're in a coffee break, you're in your coffee room, getting your cup of coffee at work or at school or wherever you are, and somebody walks in, and they make a statement, like, you know, in some passing statement, they, it could be anything, but they drop some line about Darwin, Charles Darwin, right? That's a clue. Like, if you're looking for God, and people are more important, that's a clue. Now, normally when this clue comes, and when, when things are prioritized on our regular daily ladder, we do one of two things. We don't say a thing, because we are respectful that really nothing can happen in the next three minutes. Right? Why talk? Why engage this person on, on some of these ideas? Because we're in the coffee, and I got a meeting, and I got this, and I got that, and I got this, and I got that. Three minutes, it wouldn't be genuine. I really wouldn't be respectful. So we do nothing. That's the first thing we typically do. Right? Even as pastors, we do this. Because people aren't a little higher up on the ladder. The other thing we do is we try to engage, but we do it within the three to five minutes in the coffee room, which means we actually diminish the human being because we take this, what is truly, might be a profound statement of their entire worldview, and we try to wrap it up in two seconds and be like, there you go, go in peace, I gave the gospel. I don't know why they don't respond. I mean, I shared it to them in like three easy steps, real quick, bop, bop, bop. But, and the reason they don't respond is they felt your agenda. They felt, this, this is what I've come to believe. They know that you sharing the gospel, that idea, is more important to you than they are to you. Because in three minutes, you cannot value the human. So here's your homework assignment. So when you see a clue like that, the idea is, are you willing to ask yourself, is the next thing I'm about to do really that important? Like, we almost didn't take a clue one day because we were going to the library to 
study. I mean, there are times in my life I avoided that at all costs. But it's just this idea of sometimes we make our destination very important just because it fits in the category of destination. That's the next thing we're going to do. So it becomes like on the top of the ladder. But is that next thing, does it have to be the next thing? Can you, can you say, you know what, I know I have a meeting, but I'm the boss and I called the meeting. And say to the person, you know, what you just said is like profoundly curious to me. Like, I have a meeting, and if I could cancel the meeting, would you be free for lunch? I'm just saying, these are ideas. Or, if you can't, if you can't cancel the meeting, rather than trying to kind of drive home a a 30-year idea in two minutes, why don't you say to them, look, hey, I, I have to run, but you have captured my curiosity. You sound interesting. I'd like to know more. can I have your email? And I would love to catch up with you about this. Now, the danger in all of this is you're making people more important. And you don't really love people. And we're almost entirely self-centered. That's what we're learning. Now we'll turn... Oh, we can't turn to Scripture yet. Thursday night. Thursday and Friday night of this week. Um... So every, every Sunday we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, right? And I hope 365 days a year some, some part of our soul celebrates the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there are times when the church pauses to make an event of an event. And that's kind of what this week is. Um, so Thursday we're going to be hosting a communion service, a Last Supper service here at the church. Very low-key. The information's in your bulletin. We welcome you all to come and share. Terry and I are just going to kind of share reflections on the Lord's Supper. We, we're trying to take that together, and the Lord's been working through that uh, in our lives. Um, also, Friday is Good Friday service, and uh, we encourage you to come and join us as we kind of observe, focus on the crucifixion of Christ and what that means and how that feels. So I, we welcome you to both. I, you can certainly hope you make it to one, but I, I, would, I would love to see you at both. Chippy Chapel will be joining us on Friday, our Good Friday service. Um, you may not know it. Our deacons have uh, selflessly... Uh, Chippy doesn't have a baptismal, a baptistry, so every time they have a candidate for baptism, our deacons do the whole thing. They serve their church completely, and it has built a bridge of love that I did not see coming. And so their congregation said, on Good Friday, can we go to that church and worship with them? And uh, it, that, it, that brings so much joy to my heart um, to see that happen. So I hope to see you at some of them or at both of them. Uh, information's in your bulletin. Would you open your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 20? It's page 860. This morning we're going to be studying Judgment Day, the great white throne judgment, the great judgment of God, the great and terrible day of the Lord, in its absolute sense. This is the day of the Lord that we're studying. This is the end. And I know I've been saying that for weeks. I'm like, we're at the end. And then the next week I say, we're at the end. But seriously, this is the end. We have another Sunday, but this is the end. This is the end of the end. Till next Sunday, but this is the end. 
I want to read for you chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. So all the striving on the earth has ceased, okay? And this is what's written. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, earth and sky, fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This may be the least colorful scene in the entire book of Revelation. Like when I have to imagine, and I've seen things with seven eyes and ten horns and, and all of these sorts of things. I've seen witnesses calling fire from the sky. I have to say, this may actually be exactly what it's like. It's... It's, it's very non-picturesque. And the picture we're given is, is one of, at the very end, I'll just kind of share it in, in, like, in just, just broad categories, every human being that has ever lived, all of humanity is going to be brought before the throne where Christ will judge. And in this judgment, there will be these books is what it says. These books are opened. And these books you might think of as like your spiritual biography. It's, your, it's the account of your life, what you've done, what you haven't done. This is what, this is what we think, right? Because you're judged according to what you've done, it says, and these are in the books. So in the books are the things you've done or have left undone or should have done or should not have done. Whatever it is, they're in the books. And then there is this book Right? There's the books, which are kind of spiritual biographies. And then there is the Lamb's Book of Life. And in that, it's, it's, we're kind of judged over here according to what we've done and what is as recorded in the books. And then our name is cross-referenced in the Lamb's Book of Life. And if our name is in the Lamb's Book of Life, we do not experience what the Bible calls the second death, this final death where they're thrown into the fiery pit, Hell, the lake of fire. That's, that's the image that's, that's kind of given to us here in the 20th chapter of Revelation. But what it's, it's interesting is it seems like our deeds really seem to matter, but that having our name in the book of life seems to matter most. Do you see that? Everyone, everyone's judged by the books, and it's as though the books doom us, but the book saves us. It isn't as though you're going to look in the Lamb's Book of Life, or excuse me, in, your name will be referenced in the books, and you will be found righteous. It says everyone whose name was not found in the Lamb's Book of Life was thrown into the, into the fiery lake. So the idea is coming out of the books, we're to walk away knowing that God is just in what he's done. He's recorded your life. It's before the throne. 
And he's just in what he does. The judgment unto eternal life in heaven or eternal death in the fiery lake, those are not arbitrary decisions of God, but as things recorded in the books. But in this, this is where sometimes in, in kind of the conversation of the faith where it's thinking, the, the nature of works and faith kind of arrive in the same room. They're here together in the same room. And they both seem to matter. And so we begin to ask these kinds of questions in, in our minds. Things like this. How do I get my name in the book? That's kind of a crass way of saying it. right? So how... How do I make sure my name is in the book of life? Or we ask things like, what role do works play in my salvation? Because it seems to matter. It seems to matter before the Lord that there are works. I mean, we're being called to the throne, and that's what's being discussed. So how do works play into our salvation? And, and, and what do I have to do to get saved? These are the kinds of questions that when we read these, I think people are thinking, is what do I have to do get saved. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at two other images of justice or judgment, two other pictures in the Bible of judgment, and we're going to allow, we're going to then take these ideas and, and kind of bring them into the great throne room uh, to, to kind of enlighten what's going on. So if you would, let's look at one. It's in Matthew chapter 25, which is page 690. I selected this one because this conversation happened on the Mount of Olives in the last week of Christ's life. So if the church calendar were consistent with the life of Christ, Jesus might have this conversation on Tuesday, is how you might think about it. And I thought it might be appropriate for us to kind of uh, think of it that way. Matthew 25, and it's the end of the chapter, verse 31. Let me read this picture to you. I call this two flocks, one shepherd. This is Christ speaking. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another, as, shepherd, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right, and the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. 
They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The image we have here of these flocks kind of describes, it even says that the king is behaving as like a shepherd. He separates them as a shepherd would separate sheep from the goats. And the sheep are receiving and being welcomed into eternal life while the goats are receiving eternal punishment in hell. And when we look at this illustration, it's easy and natural for us to say, well, that's because the sheep did good things and the goats did bad things. I mean, they're different. Sheep are different. They look different than goats do. They sound different. They taste different. I've eaten both. Uh, They act different. That's the point, right? They act different. The sheep's behavior is different than the behavior of the goats. And in this, works seem to matter. We look at the story, and certainly works seem to matter. Christ seems to take their works very seriously. In fact, at first glance, it seems to be that's all that matters in this story, is that their, their works But I I want us to kind of think about this, think a little more deeply into this, given what we know about some of the rest of Scripture. Certainly, I think we could say this, that the person who feeds the most poor people does not automatically get into heaven. Right? I, I mean, it's not that. It's not who feeds the most poor people or hungry people. I mean, that just what that does, in fact, is it makes it gives the wealthy a decided advantage, doesn't it? The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, if they gave one percent of of their yearly income to the feeding of the poor, they would feed more people than every if every family in our entire church pooled one hundred percent of our income and gave it to feed the poor. Some of you doing the math, I, it's, it's about right. They make a lot of money, right? That's just the reality is, is, is uh, that is simply to say, well, you know, feeding the poor, that's what, it, do a good deed, that's what it means. That's not, that's not what it means. The, the Pharisees were experts at doing good deeds. They, they made a life's process about saying, what do I have to do? And then they would go do it. If God said to the, to the Pharisees, well, your job is to feed, to feed the poor and to give them something to drink and to clothe them, they certainly would have done that if they knew that that was the code to get into heaven, was feed, water, clothe, visit in prison, help the sick, they would have done those things. And they would have done them wonderfully. So it's not exactly about simply doing those things. And and, and it's not just we send a box of shoes to Ethiopia or we put some coins in the bucket uh, outside, outside Walmart, the Salvation Army bucket or something like that. It's... There's something that's deeper that's at work here, and I think it's seen in the Christ-centeredness of the illustration. Right? Christ says, when I, when I was hungry, you fed me. 
When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick and in prison, you visited me. When I was a stranger, you took me in. He's, he, what Jesus is doing is, is taking not just what they did, but he's dealing with their motivation behind what they did. Why did they do what they did? And he's saying, it's because you saw me in the world. It's Jesus' way of saying to, to, these, to the sheep, You look at the world with my eyes. Or, when you look at the world, you see me in their eyes. That's what Christ is saying. Whereas to the others, he's saying, you never see me anywhere. And when you see the world, nothing about the world looks like me to you. You don't even recognize me. You don't love people enough. This image conveys a powerful yet simple perspective on judgment. Do you see the world through God's eyes and do you see God in the eyes of the world? What's your motivation? To the question of, is my name written in the book? I would say this, does Christ shepherd you? If you want to know, it's my name written in the book, I would say, examine yourself. Examine your heart. Turn your eyes and ears inward and say, Does Christ shepherd you? Does does the things he says pull you towards him? Do you flock around him? Is he the shepherd that guards you? Does the things he says motivate you after him? Do you follow him? Do you look to him? Do you desire to see a world like him? Do you, sitting here, do you desire in your heart that Christ might be more and that you might be less? Or do you pretty much do what you want? Are you content with the way you view things in this world? Let's look at one more image. I'm going to send you back to Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, which is probably 859. I call this two armies, one victor. Okay. This is kind of a different reflection. And this one is kind of a reality that's painting the picture. I'm going to read verses 11 to 21. This is right before the great white throne judgment. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war, His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his, right, on his thigh, 
he has written the name, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the king of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Last Sunday, we talked about this this unholy gathering of kind of the armies of the beast. Remember, the beast is the Antichrist. He is the dragon incarnate. He is... um, and, and the prophet is the other beast, the false prophet, who is the anti-Christianity. It's the anti-faith. It's, the idea is that those who follow this, this beast, this anti-Christ, that it will be a spiritual kind of following, that there will be, there will be a, an anti-God spirituality upon the world, which I certainly can identify with. And they gather and they muster all their armies at a field called Armageddon. And this is kind of the battle that finally transpires here in verses 11 to 21. Which is absolutely anticlimactic, by the way. It would never make a great movie. Because you have all the people of the earth who've kind of mustered, and you can imagine they're doing their kind of Viking roars and chants and brandishing their arms and clanging their shields. And the battle is just the horse rides in and slays everybody with the word of his, word of his mouth. It's done. It's so anticlimactic, it's stupendous. And there is this great battle, and there is this great rider in the sky who wields this sword, the sword of the word. And following behind the rider in the sky is this army of saints the multitude of his people, the faithful. And they're wearing white garments, white pure linens. In the earlier chapter, it says, these limits are the righteous acts of the saints. That's what they're there to kind of represent. And it's easy to read a story or an account like this and walk away saying one of the armies is good and one of the armies is bad. And certainly that's true. These, that's absolutely the case. They look different. They dress different. There's different marks. They've done different things. One of them is arrayed in their righteous deeds, and the other one is bearing the mark of the lamb on them. There is this, this, or the mark of the beast on them, right? They have different marks and all these ideas, but there's there's a deeper idea that's at work here than than, than works. The, The notion of works is present, but it's peripheral to the entire idea of the rider in the sky. He's the main character in this, we're following after the rider in the sky. In fact, it is not even clear that the army of God is carrying any weapons. They're, they're in white robes. They're going into battle in white robes. 
We don't do that. And it says, it says that, look at, look at uh, verse 21. The rest of them were killed with what? The sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. It is as though the rider does everything and the people of God follow after him. We're holy, right? There's a kind of a holiness about the people of God, but there's, there's, more, there's more to life than simply holiness or abstaining from things, not doing things or seeking purity. The Pharisees did that, didn't they? The Pharisees said, we will, there's all these things that we'll do to keep our lives holy, but they did not follow Jesus. What's at work here is the fact that God's people are following behind him. And I know for some, the idea of kind of the militant pictures of what God's going to do are sometimes especially troubling. But this is what God gives us. And so we kind of need to submit to it. So what I want to do is I want to elevate the best ideals of the military virtue and just spiritualize them for us. Okay, I want to spiritualize the best ideals of military virtue. In other words... This is a picture of, of people who have shared in sacrifice. To be in the army of God is to have committed to a great shared sacrifice. This is, this armies, this, to be committed to the army of God is this sharing of spiritual loyalty to a great king. This idea of, of spiritual patriotism, real patriotism. I'm not talking like the fatherland. I'm talking loyalty to the father. Patriotism in the absolute sense. I have a favorite author. He calls this cosmic patriotism. We wear the insignia of God. There's a uniformity of of the people of God because they're dressed to reflect their king. And this picture displays a, a profound yet simple perspective on judgment, which is this. You are in one of two armies. There is no such thing as spiritual pacifism. There are no onlookers. We are either bearing the mark of the beast or robed in white, following behind the rider in the sky. Where is your loyalty? Who and what are you fighting for? These are the questions if you're wondering, is your, is your name in the book of life? One irony behind these two images, the image from Matthew and the image from Revelation, is that they deal with different sides of the faith. One, people receive their salvation from Christ because Christ says, because you see me everywhere, you love the world. And another one, they receive their salvation from Christ in a picture that says, because you follow me, you hate the world. There's this, this, this illustration, which is very comforting, embraces, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And this one says, you've maintained your purity and have not shared in the life of the world. And because of it, you hate the things of this world. And classically, Christians are out of balance in this idea. Either we, we really respond to the idea of loving, and, but we don't understand kind of the part that in our life that's hating, or we really do a good job in hating the things of the world, and in doing so, we hate everybody. 
These images kind of balance one another out. And if we take, if we take these ideas and we, we can kind of import them into this great white throne judgment, I feel like it gives us a better sense of what is actually written in the Lamb's book of life. What does it mean to be written, having your name written? If you're sitting here going, do I have my name written in the Lamb's book of life? I would say, well, do you follow the great shepherd? Do you say the Lord, not just say, do you say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. When there's all these things that you want, do you say, he is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Is the Lord, is Christ your king? Are you his loyal subject? Do you say, and I, when I, I mean really say, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Does that prayer, does that formulate in you? And does it come out? And is it genuine? You, you can filter that. You can process that. Is it, how true are these things? If those are the case, then, then I, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. If Jesus is your God, is your king and your shepherd, he's your Lord and he's your Savior. I want to close with this idea. When we get to this issue, we, we, you know, are we just, we're judged by works, but we're saved by grace, and we have this thing of the judgment seat, and what invariably happens is we build one another, one of the ideas up, and what ends up happening is the other one gets diminished. I, I, I want to, I kind of want to kind of bring the, the two together and elevate the two, because they both matter. And this is how I want to elevate the two of them. Firstly, I do not think that when the books are opened, that it's just a list of all the bad stuff you did. I think when the books are opened, I hope and pray that the Lord will say to me, well, when I look here, I see that when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And when I weighed my life into sacrifice, you followed after me. And when no one was defending my name, you stood up and defended my name. And you bore the mark of me. That, that for a Christian, I think that when the books are opened, it will be hard and it will not be justifying that we will see that we are in desperate need of finding our name in the Lamb's book of life. But nonetheless, I do believe that God's going to say to those of us who did well, well done, my good and faithful servant. And I think that we should, we should rejoice in that. That when we do the work of the Lord, we have every right to enjoy God and to enjoy the righteousness that is kind of being participated in. I think that makes righteous acts glorifying. To know that they're righteous and they're to be enjoyed and to do them in the Lord. And so I would encourage in the first place that idea, that perspective of work, that when we do the work of God, we're sharing in the life of God. And that will be recorded and read. And then here's the last thing. When we get to this question of, so do my works matter? The reality is, that now, I know there's an honest way of asking it, but that is about the most self-centered question that we can think of. 
in this grand question of salvation, is it by salvation by faith or salvation by works? And we go, it's faith. Works don't, works don't save us. Well, that's true. The point of works are not to save you. The point of works is to save others. That's what the works are for. When someone's hungry and you look at them and you see that they bear the image of Christ and you then weigh and invest your life into them and feed them, you are bringing the redemption of God right to their little three square feet of space. That's what we're doing. We as the small saints of Christ are slowly marching the redemptive power of Jesus through the world. We're bringing this new creation here the works, are, the works are for us to enjoy God, but the works are also for us to bring others into the joy of God. But yet we sometimes ask them with such a selfish perspective of, well, do they save me? What, what role then do the works have? If the works have nothing to do with your life, that's okay, because they have everything to do with other people's lives. We do these things because we love Jesus and because they trickle into their lives as the gospel. So that we are not alone, but at the throne we are with every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. I pray that in the reading of the books and in the Lamb's book of life, we are found faithful before the Lord.